It's Go West Young Podcast, where the wind is finally calming down after a breezy week in downtown Denver. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities. We've got a different sort of episode for you this week. We are heading down Interstate 25 to Colorado College, where the State of the Rockies Project just released its annual Conservation in the West Pole. Now, we've done episodes on the pole in the past because it is a very big deal in the conservation world. But this year was also the 10th anniversary of the pole. So the State of the Rockies folks went big, putting on a symposium with some of the biggest names in the conservation world, many of whom you have heard here on this podcast before. Folks like Senator Tom Udall, Len Nessifer, who was on our live episode from Tucson last year, Maite Arce of the Hispanic Access Foundation, and Colin O'Mara of the National Wildlife Federation. All of them you will hear from in this episode. It was amazing having these folks all there in one place, sharing a bunch of different perspectives on the past, present, and future of conservation in the West. So today, we are going to listen to highlights from that symposium, cramming eight hours of content into the next hour or so, starting with the opening keynote from the governor of Montana, Steve Bullock, who couldn't resist poking a little fun at Colorado along the way. You know, now, when I had an opportunity to actually brag about Montana in Colorado, it was an offer that I certainly had to take up. But all kidding aside, from my perspective, Colorado's unrivaled outdoor experiences make it one of the most spectacular places in the nation, a close second, perhaps, to Montana. But also, it, it really is an incredible honor to get to be here with you to celebrate your public lands and all of the many values that we share together here in the West. Unlike no other place in the country, I think folks out West really do have a special appreciation for our public lands. We know that our public lands are our heritage, they're our birthright, they're our great equalizer meaning it doesn't matter the size of your checkbook or who your parents were or where you're from, our public lands and access to them are for everyone. You don't have to be that millionaire from Aspen, Sun Valley, Jackson Hole, or even Big Sky in Montana to hike on these lands, to camp with your family in your favorite park. Our public lands truly belong to all of us. And we're blessed to have so many national treasures surrounding us in the West. But we also know that every American has equal ownership and an equal stake in these public lands. And certainly, well, the lands equally belong to all of us. The economies that they generate belong to us. The fight to protect and preserve our public lands it's not just an, an historic one, it truly is an economic one. There are the obvious impacts of tourism and a thriving outdoor recreation industry. Last year, we had ne nearly 13 million Americans visit Montana. And they ain't coming for our Walmarts, right? They're coming to enjoy and explore our wild places. Our state's outdoor recreation economy delivers over $7.1 billion in annual consumer spending, employs over 71,000 people in our state. It's a major economic force for our state. In Colorado here, that's $28 billion in consumer spending, 229,000 direct jobs. And it's more than just the direct jobs and that spending. 
People want to live and work and raise a family in Montana in large measure because of our public lands. And I can sure bet it's the same all the way throughout our Rocky Mountain West. But what makes us even more special, I think, out West, and it's not just economics, our lands are part of that traditional family values we pass on from generation to generation. Just like our grandparents and parents did for us, our children and our children's children will grow up actually watching and seeing the stars and getting outdoors. I'll bet that each of you that gather here today certainly have incredible memories or unforgettable stories from adventures you've had on public lands. The first date I went on with my former high school classmate a decade later, who then became my wife, Lisa, was on a picnic in the South Hills of Helena, just minutes away from where we live now today. The first summit my three kids bagged was called Mount Ascension, which you wouldn't quite look at it as a big mountain. But it, it was part of the open space that was preserved by land trusts also right on the edge of town uh, in Helena. Fortunate to take my 13-year-old son, Cameron, hunting on public lands nearly every year, often successful in harvesting a uh, buck. My oldest is 17, and just last night at dinner, she was telling one of the guests about a trip we took two summers ago into the Bob Marshall Wilderness area. And she talked about, I was five days on that South Fork of the Flathead River, being able to see the stars. And you know what? I didn't miss Snapchat once. Like, this is actually working. Now, whether it's falling in love on a picnic, well, on a trail hike, or your kid's first summit climb, or an unforgettable hunt, those are the memories that shape and define us as Westerners and indeed as Americans. Those who came before us had that foresight to maintain our history, our outdoor legacy, the memories that define us. They knew then what we know now. Setting lands aside for the public's benefit, it's one of the greatest of American ideas. And it's an idea that can and must survive the generations. As Theodore Roosevelt said in 1910, of all the questions which can come before this nation, short of the actual preservation of its existence in a great war, there's none which compares in importance with the great central task of leaving this land an even better land for our descendants than it is for us. Now, it's up to us. It's up to us to pay it forward, to make sure that future generations have that opportunity to wander, to contemplate, to create those lifelong memories on our prized public lands. But make no mistake, our public lands are under attack. And along with it, our clean air, our clean water, our wildlife, and the very values that define us out here in the West. There are those who are actively working to erode our parks, and forests and undermine access. There are individuals and corporate interests that want to try to transfer or sell our public lands. There continues to be troubling signs coming out of Washington, D.C. Just a couple of weeks ago, the Trump administration finalized plans to open up two of Utah's national monuments for drilling and mining. 
This is the largest elimination of protected public lands in U.S. history, acting in defiance of over 100 years of history, or 16 presidents <clears throat> designating 157 national monuments, dating all the way back to 1906, when Theodore Roosevelt first used the Antiquities Act to protect Devil's Tower in Wyoming. An attack on public lands anywhere is an attack on public lands everywhere. And it flies in the face of who we are as a nation. It's Montana Governor Steve Bullock laying out what's at stake. Later on in the day, there was a great panel discussion with four conservation leaders on the future of conservation efforts in the West. And even more so than in years past, the threat that climate change poses kept coming up again and again. Here's Colin O'Mara, the CEO of National Wildlife Federation, talking about how climate change has become an urgent and shared political issue in the West. I mean, I think the, I think the roadmap for climate is very similar to the roadmap for public lands, right? You make it hyper-local, you make it things that exactly as was said. Um, you know, the abstract kind of polar bears and puffins obviously did not kind of get the job done as the messaging, but you're talking about fires in your backyard, you're talking about that trout stream that's warming, screwing up the spawning rates, talking about the droughts, um, things that affect the backyard, the things that affect the dinner table, um, all of a sudden becomes real. And, and I think, you know, all of a sudden becomes a shared value. I think we're going to see the same evolution on climate that we did see on public lands, where you frankly can't win if you're on the wrong side of this issue over time. And we're seeing it already in Colorado. You know, we're seeing it already in New Mexico, little little bit in a few of the other states. But you know, I don't want to get too far on the politics. But you know, the only way to really lose as a Republican right now in some of these deep red states is to be on the wrong side of public lands. We can do the same thing with climate, right? And again, if you make it values-based, make it about local investment, local solutions. Again, not kind of overly federal and overly top-down, but kind of working with community solutions and you know, making sure natural solutions are a big part of the conversation, making sure that we're you know, really trying to lift up industries and you know, build the outdoor economy. Um, but that's the pathway. And, and really, the last few years have kind of shown this, right? I mean, you know, in Montana, you know, Governor Bullock should not have won his race, right? I mean, President Trump carried the state by almost 20 points. Um, you know, he ends up winning by four. You know, same thing in the same thing in the Senate race with John Tester last time, right? He beats Rosendale. Obviously, that race should not have been won by a Democrat. Trump was there four times. Um, but again, in, in, on public lands, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll assert this, and kind of public lands and healthcare kind of being the frame, but public lands in particular, being on the wrong side of that issue is just a death knell. And we're going to see that play out again this time in a couple Senate seats. And we're also seeing that folks are trying to quickly become kind of more on the right side of public lands um, to try to salvage, you know, Senate seats right now. And so how that plays out, I think is going to be really important. We're going to see the same thing on climate. I mean, it's just it's spending a lot of time in D.C. Kind of, it's so great to be here, not in the swamp for a day. But the um, the denier kind of rhetoric is, is fading very quickly, right? All of a sudden now it's about you know innovation or research or, hey, we need to know more. But it's, it's, it's not the denialism we saw a few years ago. That's because the impacts, despite what folks have been fed kind of through the meat, through kind of very specific media and kind of talk radio and the like, um, and even on Fox, um, what they're seeing is fundamentally different. And so all of a sudden, if we can connect our values to kind of what they're seeing in the landscape with reasonable solutions, all of a sudden that becomes a value and that's how the politics shift overnight. 
We also heard from Len Nessifer, who you may recall from our live episode in Tucson last summer. Len is an assistant professor at the University of Arizona's American Indian Studies program, as well as the Udall Center for Public Policy there. As if that's not enough, he is the CEO of an outdoor apparel company, Natives Outdoors. He is also literally a rocket scientist, having worked at a NASA research center on supersonic vehicles. So with all the things Len could talk about... He focused on tribal sovereignty and respect, and the progress that has been made and then rolled back over the last few years. Um, In the Obama administration, there was some strides made towards uh, meaningful consultation of federal agencies and actions that happen um, on public lands. Um, Unfortunately, it was incomplete. Um, you know, one of the things that I like to say that could improve this is, is uniformity across agencies, um, making sure that these processes of how tribes are talk- consulted in the, in the process of this for federal decision making is consistent. Um, also accountability. Um, that's accountability for federal agencies. That's been one of the pitfalls of the process is that in many cases in this administration, if, if a tribe has sent an email about a particular decision, that's considered consultation. <laughs> Um, and the last is also ensuring that tribes' voices have a meaningful influence on the decisions that are made. Right now in my backyard in Tucson, the border wall is a great example of that. Um, the act that basically allowed for this, the construction of the new wall um, waived a lot of um, environmental and cultural uh, laws and considerations in in its development in order to speed its process. One of them is the um, Native American Graves and Protection and Repatriation Act. And um, just a few days ago, there was a basically a a controlled explosion of an area that was a Native American grave right along the border. And the tribe wasn't consulted on this. Um, You know, this is one of the many ways in which this plays out. And at least for the Ta'anatam tribe, it's very real in terms of impacting their heritage and connection to the landscape. Our executive director here at the Center for Western Priorities, Jen Rokla, was also on that panel. She highlighted the way public lands can help rural economies, but also the importance of not focusing that impact on just a handful of ultra-popular places and then putting those lands at risk from overuse. You know, I think uh, Governor Bullock touched on this when he talked about uh, the offices of outdoor recreation. And I think a number of states, uh, Colorado, Utah, Montana, Oregon, I don't have the list in front of me, but a number of states have created these outdoor offices of recreation uh, to, you know, help bring the um, outdoor rec economy to communities throughout the West, but also to make sure that the impact is, uh, you know, not hurting our public lands, but enhancing our public lands. So growing the economy in these communities um, and spreading it out so that businesses are relocating to communities uh, that might be, you know, losing, um, you know, the traditional energy uh, economy and creating uh, an outdoor rec economy that is a clean economy. So I think the outdoor offices, outdoor rec offices have been, had had a great impact and We're seeing more states uh, add those to their uh, governor's offices. And finally, Maite Arce, CEO of Hispanic Access Foundation. She highlighted the impact that the Land and Water Conservation Fund in particular has had on diverse communities across the country. I think the biggest success um, in the last 10 years, one that I really care about, um, and I'll mention a couple, is that uh, communities... Uh, more diverse communities are really engaging in the conservation movement and uh, really starting to lead uh, their campaigns and and work that's important to them in communities in the way that 
uh, we need uh, those communities to lead. I think uh, one of the quiet um, but very important policies and programs out there is the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And there's been such a, such a um, challenge to have it reauthorized every time that it comes around and then also funded. And the permanent reauthorization of the Land and Water Conservation Fund was really critical because it provides, it has provided resources to our parks and, and waterways for in all 50 states and, and in so many communities, including mine growing up in Southern California, um, really helps to provide resources for trails and for, for um, camping, um, uh, camping areas and, and rec other recreational areas, but is also provides more safe and, and um, uh, areas for kids and families to recreate. That has been a hard policy and program to really um, uh, make sure that all of us support because it's not been branded very well. It's not a well-known uh, program, but yet it touches all of our lives. And it's been it, the, the last year when it was reauthorized permanently, um, and we don't have to have that challenge in the future. It's really exciting. Now we just have to really focus on getting it funded. Let's bring in the pollsters who did the heavy lifting here. Lori Weigel with Newbridge Strategy and Dave Metz with FM3. Lori is a Republican pollster. Dave is a Democratic pollster. And that is one of the reasons why the Colorado College Conservation in the West Pole is the gold standard when it comes to public opinion on outdoor issues. Lori and Dave, welcome back to the podcast. Pleasure Thanks to be here. Having us. So let's get the basics out of the way here. This is a big poll. You've got 3,200 people polled across Arizona, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming, which is to say 400 voters in each state. The polls conducted in English and Spanish, and all of the region-wide numbers that we're going to be talking about here, you've weighted them to reflect the population of each state. Did I get the, the basics down here? That's correct. I want to start then by asking both of you to pick out what you think the biggest takeaway was from this year's poll. And uh, Lori, I'll let you go first. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I think one of the one of the real benefits of this survey has been that we've been able to ask uh, people about various issues over the last 10 years. So this is the 10th survey that we've conducted. And while we haven't tracked every single question the same. You know, we made a concerted effort this year to kind of go back in the archives, look at some of the things that we asked the very first year in 2011 and assess how people are responding. And so one of the biggest areas of change, which obviously tends to stand out, is just where climate change is and attitudes on climate change. It went from really not being top of mind at all when we asked people in 2011 to, to tell us the most important environmental problems or issues today to being, you know, tied as number one. So from 5% in 2011 volunteering that issue, basically a third of voters throughout the West just immediately thinking of climate change as a, as a big environmental issue. And every single question that we asked about climate change that we had tracked from 2011, we saw um, increasingly people are concerned and say it's a serious issue. 
um, and that they want action to be taken on it. So that was that was a real big change um, from from essentially a decade ago. That's a, a remarkable shift in a, in a short amount of time. Uh, Dave, any other changes that you've noticed over the years here that stuck you this year? Well, one of the big ones that stuck out to me was the importance of the environment as an issue that people are focusing on when they're making decisions about how to vote. Uh, obviously, this is an election year, and so um, issues relating to land and water and wildlife are not just important in their own right, but in terms of who we're going to elect to handle these issues over the course of the next few years. Um, and in this year's poll, we saw a dramatic increase in the importance of these issues to voters relative to what we've seen in past election cycles. Uh, 80% of voters told us that uh, issues relating to clean air, clean air, wild, I'm sorry, clean water, clean air, wildlife, and public lands are important issues for them in deciding whether to vote for an elected official, including 44% who said it was either a primary factor uh, or a very important issue to them. That's almost half of the Western electorate, and those numbers are up dramatically from where they were in 2016. Just four years ago, heading into the last presidential election, the equivalent figure was only 31%. So that's a 13-point jump in the intensity of attention that people are paying to conservation issues in just four years. Um, and I think that speaks to the degree of uh, sort of interest that people have had as, as at least at the federal level, we've taken a radically different direction um, in terms of uh, protections for land, water, and wildlife uh, with the new administration that's been in place since 2016. And that was a fairly remarkable number that stuck out to me asking voters about uh, overall priorities, how we should use public lands, protecting clean water and air versus maximizing the use of public lands for responsible oil and gas drilling. Uh, and that's obviously a, a very well-balanced question. And the answer that you get out of that one was not at all balanced. It was overwhelming uh, in terms of, of voters saying protecting clean air and water is a priority over maximizing energy production. Is that, is that right? Yeah, we had two-thirds of respondents throughout the West telling us that they would tell their member of Congress that what's more important when it comes to public lands is exactly what you talked about, those conservation values and the ability to go out and recreate on those lands over, um, even as we phrase it, responsible energy development um, on those public lands. Uh, only about one in four mentioned that as, their, as what should be their top priority. And it really comes down to this. Um, it's one of the things that's been consistent throughout, again, this 10-year period that we've looked at um, voters' attitudes in the interior west is really that, that consistent feeling that public lands needs to be conserved and protected, when, whether we ask about specific places, whether we talk more broadly and generically about public lands, but they place that priority on conservation values and, and our ability to go out and access and, and recreate on those lands too. I was fascinated by a number of regional questions in this year's poll, uh, one of them around uranium mining at the Grand Canyon, which we may see come back up as this uh, nuclear working group that the White House has comes back with recommendations. What are voters, both in Arizona and across the West, saying about this 
uh, domestic uranium production versus protecting the canyon? So, um, I'll, I'll jump in. We had uh, we asked them about allowing new uranium mining claims on those existing public lands right next to the Grand Canyon National Park. We did tell them that that's a practice that is currently banned. Um, and we've asked this or variations of this in the past and seen very consistent responses. We only had one in four say that they support allowing that new uranium mining claims versus 71% in opposition. Interestingly, in Arizona, it, the opposition was strongest. 77% um, of Arizona voters said that they reject such a change, and in fact, it was 62% who say they strongly oppose that. But it was really the vast majority of voters in every single state, and I think it speaks to the iconic nature of the Grand Canyon. Um, it's just sort of one of the most famous and iconic national parks in the Western United States. And I presume then once you're once you're at those kinds of levels, north of 75%, you're not seeing a big partisan divide in the numbers there, are you? No, it was, I mean, there was a, it was sort of a, a difference without distinct, or distinction without difference, I guess I should say. It was really um, bipartisan rejection of such a change. So every year you've asked about specific policy proposals that are have been brought up by by members of congress or by governors one of the ones that was new this year was this proposal to protect 30% of america's land and water by 2030 not knowing how a question like that is going to poll uh dave if you want to jump in uh, how did that one turn out well, there was overwhelming support for the concept. We had almost three quarters of, of voters across the West, 73%, telling us that they would support the idea of protecting 30% of America's lands and ocean areas by the year 2030. Um, and that included almost half of Western voters, 49%, who said they would strongly support such a policy. Uh, this is another one of those that uh, also cut across partisan lines, uh, which obviously is rare in today's politics. We had majorities of Republicans, independents, and Democrats all telling us that they would support uh, this conservation goal. And uh, I think that's really uh, a telling number when you think about the um, degree to which Western states are uh, you know, include large amounts of, of federal public lands, and some of those issues at times have, have been contentious, at least at, uh, in terms of the most vocal public debate. But at the level of voters, there really does seem to be a very broad consensus in favor of um, setting ambitious targets for uh, conserving uh, those, uh, those uh, public lands and oceans. We've got to let both of you go in just one second. So before that, I want to ask each of you to pick out something deep into this poll, because this is a 15-minute survey. There are a whole lot of questions here uh, that m may not have made it into some of the articles that folks have seen. So uh, each of you pick out one favorite number that might have surprised you the most uh, when the numbers came back. And, and I'll let Lori go first here. Oh, boy. Um, well, Dave's going to kill me because it's probably his favorite number, too. Uh <laughs> And that is that uh, we had seen a few years ago this increasing awareness that um, the loss of pollinators, such as bees and butterflies, was emerging and sort of organically in focus groups and conversations that we have with voters. 
So we actually tested it this year in the survey to ask people if they thought that was a uh, problem facing their state. And in fact, we have a majority of Westerners say it's an extremely or very serious problem. The vast majority, overwhelming majority, said it was at least somewhat of a serious problem facing their state. Only 16% just dismissed it. So it's been a it's been really interesting. Also, bees and butterflies tend to cross partisan lines. It was one of the most unanimously seen as a uh, as a uh, as a problem facing their state by Republicans, unaffiliated voters, and Democrats. So uh, you know maybe that's something that can unite us is cute bees and butterflies. Voters come together over bees. I guess this is this is great news for big honey. Uh, Dave, any, uh, any favorites or any surprises for you this year? Well, I certainly uh, don't want to slight the bees and butterflies because I do, <laughs> as, as Lori suggested, love that number as well. Um, I think what surprised me, or at least was striking to me, is, and, and this is not necessarily something that's buried deep in the numbers, but it's part of what Lori and I were just talking about, is just this striking rise in the level of concern about uh, climate change and conservation, not just in their own right, but relative to other issues. Um, because this poll is about conservation in the West, traditionally from year to year, we've most of our focus within the poll has been on conservation issues uh, as such, sort of within their own realm. And, you know, we had a number of questions in this year's poll, which really connected conservation to other issues. Uh, the question we talked about earlier, the number of voters who see conservation issues as important to choosing an elected official. In the wording of that question, we asked them to think explicitly about other issues like education and healthcare uh, that are the, traditionally at the top of the list of voters' concerns. And even compared to those, uh, they were telling us it was, uh, you know, a, a very high priority and one that they've uh, not said was as high a priority in years past. Similarly, around climate change, um, among Democratic voters, 54% are telling us that they rate it as one of the top environmental problems facing the country today. Uh, and I can tell you from my other work uh, in this year's presidential primary campaigns, among Democratic primary voters, climate change is the number one concern that they have, not just the number one environmental issue, but number one compared to things like health and education and transportation and criminal justice reform. Um, and that's remarkable. And I think it in the West, as in so many other parts of the country, uh, as voters become more attuned to the realities of the impact climate change is having, um, it is moving very rapidly up the list of issues that they are, frankly, demanding that elected officials pay attention to. I'll, I'll just add one thing. We think about 2011, it doesn't seem that long ago. Um, we repeated one question that really didn't relate to um, conservation at all but was one we had asked in the very first survey about their use of social media. And at the time, we just asked, are you on Facebook, Twitter, another social media site at all? And it was less than half. It was only 48%. I mean, today it's 7 in 10 of the voters that we spoke to that said they're on the social media sites. So, you know, while, while the conservation ethic has remained the same, how we're getting our information, how we're um, processing that information has really, you know, has really changed significantly in that time period. So I think it's worth just noting, you know, that some things have really changed dramatically um, in terms of how people are are processing these these issues and, and and getting their information. Facebook and Twitter really have changed the game in terms of how voters mm -hmm. learn. Is is the bottom line there? 
All right, Dave Weigel and, excuse me, Dave Metz and Lori Weigel <laughs> are the bipartisan team behind the conservation in the West Pole. Dave Weigel works for the Washington Post and is not on this podcast. <laughs> uh, thank you both for all of your insight uh, and, uh, and all the numbers. We've got links to the poll in the show notes. Dave and Lori, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. And we're going to give the last word to Senator Tom Udall of New Mexico, who is clearly thinking about his legacy and his family's legacy as he prepares to leave the Senate once his term is up next January. The senator's closing keynote at the Conservation in the West Symposium was both a warning and an invitation to the crowd, and above all else, it was deeply personal. Take a listen. I am uh, so glad to be out West because for me, the West is home, as she mentioned. My family homesteaded in the West almost 180 years ago. We have roots in Utah, Arizona, my home state of New Mexico, and here in Colorado. Westerners have a special connection to the land. Our thousands of acres of gorgeous, untamed beauty, 60-mile vistas, snow-covered rugged mountains, alpine lakes and mountain streams, and abundant wildlife. The great Western writer, Wallace Stegner, called the, the West the geography of hope, and it sure is for me. The wild beauty of the West will always inspire me, and it inspires my public service, and it probably is one of the biggest reasons I am in public service. As some of you know, the Udall family has been working for a long time to protect the beauty and grandeur of the West. The, the, she ran through it quickly, so I'll just do it again, but I was gonna make all the connections. But uh, Uncle Mo, we call him Uncle Mo. He was the chair of the House Interior Committee. My cousin Mark, your senator here and your house member for 18 years. Uh, cousin Brad, you may have not heard as much about him, but a great, water expert and climate expert that uh, is out of Colorado State University and lives up in Boulder. And my father, Stuart Udall, worked in the cabinet of two presidents as interior secretary. So just last month, we marked what would have been my father's 100th birthday. That was on January um, 31st, 2020. And I've been reflecting on my dad's legacy. It's become clear to me just how much we can and must learn from his vision. During my father's first year as Secretary of Interior, the head of the Bureau of Reclamation flew him over southern Utah to show him a site of the next big dam. And my dad looked out of that airplane window and at the red rock spires below, and he didn't see a dam. He saw the next national park. And he went back to Washington and helped create Canyonlands National Park. In 1963, 57 years later, my dad warned the nation about what he dubbed the quiet crisis in a book he wrote, and President Kennedy wrote a foreword in that book. He saw the creeping destruction of nature and wrote that, and he's really writing this to all of you, you the younger folks that are here. You're the next generation. This is his quote. It's a pretty special quote about what how you relate to the land, and I'm quoting here, each generation has its own rendezvous with the land, for despite all our fee titles and claims of ownership, we are all brief tenants on this planet. By choice or by default, 
we will carve out a land legacy for our heirs, end quote. Along with scientists like his friend Rachel Carson, my dad called on the nation to act with urgency. And, and then the strangest thing happened. The nation actually acted. And in 1960, policymakers enacted many of our nation's bedrock conservation laws and preserved millions of acres of wild places. It's hard to imagine in this day a bitter partisanship over environmental issues, but in the 1960s and in the 1970s, Congress passed these groundbreaking laws on a strong bipartisan basis. And they did it during the era of big dams and economic development at any cost. That was kind of the attitude then. When conservation and economic, when conservation and environmental protection were afterthoughts at best. Now, I didn't come here to talk to you about how great my dad was. He wouldn't have wanted that. He's a very modest guy. He would have wanted me and he wanted all of us to get to work on the problems at hand. And we now have got our work cut out for us. The first challenge is what I call the nature crisis. Wildlife has never been in greater danger. Here and across the nation and the world, we are losing species and habitat at unprecedented rates in human history. Since 1970, in North America, we've lost three billion birds. In the US, a recent study found that we lose a football field's worth of habitat every 30 seconds. A comprehensive UN biodiversity study found that one million species risk extinction. A sixth mass extinction upon us unless we act to preserve space for nature. In the West, wildlife is at risk. The iconic plains bison survive the ice age, but it may not survive the age of humans. Plains bison, what's numbered? Just think of this. 30 to 60 million bison in the plains across North America. Now the number is 20,000. So 30 to 60 million, 20,000. And it's Native American tribes that are nurturing the bison back. The once ubiquitous, ubiquitous uh, monarch butterfly found in eight western, the pole states that, that we talked about earlier, is in jeopardy. Populations of other pollinators like bees are crashing. Human existence depends on biodiversity. At least 40% of the world's economy is based on biological resources. Biodiversity gives us food, shelter, medicine, economic development, life itself. As my father said, and this is a quote here from one of his books back many, many years, plans to protect air and water wilderness and wildlife are not in fact plans, are in fact plans to protect man. And today he was very conscious of women and he would have said he would have changed man to human beings, protecting human beings. And the nature crisis is inextricably linked to the climate crisis. Climate change destroys habitat and con conditions necessary for healthy ecosystems. And the fragmentation of habitat makes it harder for wildlife to adapt to a changing climate. 
The destruction of forests and natural lands both creates greenhouse gases and reduces the potential for absorption of carbon dioxide. I don't have to explain what climate change is doing to the West, water scarcity, out of control, wildfires, pollution from fossil fuel production. Yet the president, who is down the road from us tonight, isn't listening. He rolled back almost every effort we have to fight climate change and save nature. He's withdrawn from the Paris Agreement. He's eliminated the clean power plan. He's trying to subsidize uneconomic coal-fired plants. His administration has significantly weakened the Endangered Species Act by rule. They've inviscerated Clean Water Act protections. They're taking a hatchet to some of the most precious public lands with an unprecedented rollback of Grand Staircase and Bears Ears National Monuments. The list is seemingly never ending. It's no exaggeration, just fact, that the Trump administration has the worst environmental record in history. But I'm not here to make you depressed. I kind of felt there was an era of depression setting over all of you with all that. So we've gotten to the depressed point. We're moving up, okay? Just listen to this part, we're moving up. So I, I, and I'm here to get you fired up, okay? Um, one of the most valuable lessons my father taught me was to learn from history. Because everything we do, every step we take, is building on those who came before us. In my father's time, Lake Erie and the Cuyahoga River was on fire. The bald eagle was going extinct. Cities were clogged with smog. Factories dumped toxins into rivers without any limits. And economic growth and the so-called progress were almost all people cared about. The leaders of the environmental movement 50 years ago met the challenges of their times, and we must meet the challenges of our times. Because the quiet crisis my father wrote about in the 60s is quiet no more. The crisis of nature and the crisis of climate change have risen to a crescendo, and the public is ready for action. We must write a new playbook to save our planet and our way of life. Here's the good news. I'm here to tell you we can do it. The West has changed immensely since my dad's era. Our economies have grown and diversified. Our cities have skylines. We have become much more diverse. The West has evolved and we've moved forward. And so has public opinion, especially on environmental issues. The people are demanding action and that's why I'm confident we can meet the challenges before us, just like my father's generation did. Two-thirds of Westerners think climate change is a serious problem. That's up 11% in 10 years. Three-quarters want their members of Congress and governors to have a plan to reduce carbon pollution, including a majority of Republicans. 77% consider habitat loss for fish and wildlife to be a serious problem, and 76% support protecting wildlife corridors on public lands. So you've got Democrats and Republicans and independents sharing these views by big majorities. Despite what you see coming out of Washington, there is an opportunity for fashioning consensus-based solutions. It's beyond clear that the administration's rollback of all things environmental is wildly unpopular in the West. And here's the irony. 
The president's attacks are energizing the environmental movement in this country like we have not seen in a very long time. You ask somebody like Colin, who was on this panel here with the National Wildlife Federation, how's your membership drive doing? It's off the charts. You ask all the other groups that are concerned with all these issues we're talking about. Membership is growing, people are energized. We need to harness that energy to write a bold new conservation vision for the future. A vision that doesn't just undo the Trump administration's attacks, but goes even bigger. Because if we only reverse the Trump record, it would be like putting a Band-Aid on a life-threatening wound. Senator Tom Udall, with a look back at his family's legacy and a look forward to his own. Let's wrap up with a look back at This Week in Western History. And I love this one because it all happened on our public lands. Our story starts in September of 1987, when paleontologists at the Cleveland Lloyd Dinosaur Quarry in Utah unearthed a nearly complete dinosaur egg. It was just over four inches long and two inches wide. It was broken open in half with what appeared to be a dinosaur embryo still inside. The following February, which is to say this week in 1988, the scientists revealed their discovery to the world, noting that it was the oldest dinosaur embryo ever found at the time. Because the egg was found around a lot of Allosaurus bones, they said it likely came from an Allosaurus. Uh, that's a big theropod predator. It looked a lot like a T-Rex. But as the paleontologists continued to study the egg with CAT scans and x-rays, a different story emerged. The structure of that egg didn't match any of the known dinosaurs in the Cleveland Lloyd Quarry, and the embryo wasn't developed enough to give any substantial clues. So in other words, it was almost certainly not an Allosaurus. But they were certain that the egg wasn't moved there. It appeared that the mother may have died before she could lay it, and the egg remained inside the dead dinosaur, that could possibly explain why it was so well-preserved. Uh, it's believed, by the way, that that entire quarry there was a predator trap. Think uh, along the lines of the La Brea Tar Pits uh, in Los Angeles. This, by the way, is all from an article in Science Magazine that came out a year later. I looked for any follow-up since then. I couldn't find any, so it appears we still don't know what species of egg it was. But that was not the end of the story for the Cleveland Lloyd Dinosaur Quarry. Back in 1987 and 88, it was a national natural landmark. It housed the first ever visitor center run by the Bureau of Land Management that had opened back in 68. And over the decades, more than 15,000 bones have been excavated from the quarry. And last year, thanks to the John Dingle Conservation Management and Recreation Act, the quarry got a new name. It became Jurassic National Monument, making it one of America's newest monuments. So that ancient egg is just one tiny part of a paleontological story that goes back hundreds of millions of years all the way to a national monument today and a discovery that was announced to the world 32 years ago this week in Western history. Well, that is it for this episode of Go West Young Podcast. If you know anything else about that mystery dinosaur egg, please drop us a line, podcast at westernpriorities.org. I want to give a very big shout out to Karina McKendry. She's the faculty director of the State of the Rockies Project. You've heard her on this podcast before. 
But I just want to say that without her, the symposium that we heard in this episode wouldn't have happened. You didn't hear from her in this episode because she was emceeing the whole thing, asking questions and introducing speakers. I'm sure Karina will be back on the pod in the future with more to say about the State of the Rockies project and the poll. We will be back next week when we sit down with David Hayes. He is a former deputy secretary at the Interior Department who now runs the State Energy and Environmental Impact Center at NYU. I am very much looking forward to that, hearing his thoughts on the Trump administration as well and what state attorneys general are doing to lead on environmental policy. Thanks, as always, to the whole team here at the Center for Western Priorities. I'm Aaron Weiss. Go find yourself some dinosaur bones. Dinosaur bones.